That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. It's got to take time for us to, you know, reverse uh, that historic disinvestment. I think that his... uh, Uh, coalition as well as his supporters understand that and they understand that he is fighting for them every single day that he is putting a team in place that will you know bring about that vision um, over time hi everybody i'm fran spielman my guest this week is the architect of mayor brandon johnson's 16.6 billion dollar budget Budget Director Annette Guzman, thanks for joining us. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween to you. Or should I say boo? <laughs> I <have> to... <laughs> Are you in costume? I will be later today, yes. Uh, as both what? What will you be dressed and... as? Um, I'm actually going as one of the Sanderson sisters from um, Hocus Pocus. Is this a Halloween party hosted by the mayor or one of your friends or who? Oh, no, this is just for my office. Uh, We like to get together and do fun things just to let off steam. So I thought this would be a great way for us to, you know, uh, celebrate getting the budget released um, as we work to get it passed. Good for you. I have been trying to get you on this show for weeks, and I guess the third or fourth time is the charm. How's it going now? How do you like it so far? And how different is this budget process from the one you presided over on the county side? You know, I think um, it definitely has its differences. It has its challenges. But I think in the end, everyone has the same goal, which is to produce the best budget, to provide for the most services for the residents um, in the city, and same thing on the county side. I would say that there's obviously uh, more legislators on this side than there are on the county side, which just makes for, you know, a larger conversation about the best way to get the, the budget passed. Yeah, you're lucky in the sense that this is sort of a uh, an easy vote for them. There are no very tough decisions in the sense of tax increases. The mayor opted to punt that decision on the desperate need for new revenue to a subcommittee of the city council. Uh, why did he do that? You know, the average playbook for a Chicago mayor after an election is to do all the tough stuff in the very first budget and then hope the voters forget by the time the next election rolls around. Why didn't he do that? I think this mayor has shown that he um, is a collaborator at heart and at his core. Um, And, you know, you know, he comes from an organizing background. And so I think this is just another uh, way that he demonstrates that 
um, having more voices at the table about the best way to produce more revenue for the city of Chicago, whether it be through taxes or other means, I think is uh, a testament to how he goes about uh, bringing consensus to issues. And I think with this revenue subcommittee, um, we're going to have a lot of stakeholders at the table to decide the best path forward. Well, where would you like to see this group look first? I mean, you've got this in the hands of a freshman alderman, William Hall. He is not uh, the expert on revenue. You you people are the are the experts on revenue. Would you like to go down to Springfield, for example, and start the campaign in earnest, as we've had many times before and failed, for a service tax? Uh, uh, sales tax on services that are more used by wealthier Chicagoans that the mayor wants to target? I I think that's definitely an area that we're looking at. That's an idea that's been floated uh, both inside the administration as well as outside. Um, I think that one of the things that we definitely want to look at is not only, you know, less regressive uh, revenue sources, um, that really take into account the, the economic base and expanding our economic base, um, but also looking at other ways um, outside of taxes that we could you know, generate more revenue. One thing that I'm doing inside my office um, uh, in particular is growing our team that goes after federal and state grants. I think that's really important as we see this fiscal cliff uh, looming uh, in, in a couple of years. Um, and there are a lot of dollars out there that are on the table that we're not taking advantage of that we should as the third largest city in the, in the country. So um, I have a lot of confidence in Alderman Hall. I think that he's also going to surround himself uh, with a lot of smart people who um, understand, you know, what you know, the, kind of the position that the city is in uh, will be a part of that conversation, as well as um, people external to, to city government um, in the business community as well. What do you like about the service tax? We've heard talk of it for years. It makes all kinds of sense. Why hasn't it happened? Why should it? You know, I think a lot of things uh, depend on timing. I think that we're probably in a place now where people are open, more open to this idea, given, you know, we've seen the dramatic shift away from uh, how people purchase uh, things and it's uh, more you know, shifted more now to services over goods. And so I think that people are going to be a lot more open to the idea of how they actually procure items. Um, and, and those items are mostly services. And so I just think, like everything, sometimes it's all about timing. It is a way to shift the burden to people who can most afford it, right? I mean, those are the people that are more likely to hire an accountant, hire a lawyer, uh, you know, go to a massage parlor. I think that would be also part of it. Join a health club, right? Yeah, I think it's, I, I look at it as a way of uh, sharing the burden more equitably. Um, and, you know, we all live in a city. We all uh, receive city services and want to enjoy all that the city has to offer. And we want to make sure that everyone is, uh, you know, pitching in equitably to make sure that that comes uh, about for everyone. The mayor campaigned on a promise to deliver Chicago from violent crime by making a billion dollars worth of investments in people bankrolled by 800 million in newer increased taxes on businesses and wealthy Chicagoans. 
but his first budget includes none of the home rule stuff, the home rule taxes on hotel rooms, business employment, jet fuel that he touted during the campaign. Why didn't he do what he could do on his own in his first budget? Well, I think, you know, the, the mayor has shown, you know, that he takes measured approaches. Um, he wants to make sure that he has the benefit of counsel from stakeholders on all sides. Um, you know, we've only been here for six months <laughs> um, and we're also learning um, along the way. So I think that, you know, there's much more in store for years to come. And, you know, we consider this to not be a four year term, but a, you know, eight year, 16 year, however long uh, the voters would like for him to be here uh, to get this work done. Uh, he's here for the long haul. He's here to make, you know, uh, both tough decisions, but the right decisions for the city of Chicago. And I think that he's always said that that'll take time. These, these are, these are um, measured and uh, approaches and he's gonna implement them over time. And it's a slow approach. Do you think people are going to be patient with him, the, his own progressive supporters who were promised much more than just a uh, uh, down payment, if you will? I think that uh, we didn't get her in one year. Uh, we didn't uh, turn around and wake up and see disinvestment in certain communities within the city of Chicago last, uh, overnight. And it's going to take time for us to, you know, reverse uh, that historic disinvestment. I think that his uh, uh, coalition, as well as his supporters, understand that. And they understand that he is fighting for them every single day, that he is putting t a team in place that will, you know, bring about that vision um, over time. You mentioned ways to generate revenue. How about video gaming? That's a big, easy one. It's been out there for the city to do and they have not authorized it, would you lift the ban? Would you like them, the city council, to lift the ban on video gaming in Chicago, considering that we have these sweepstakes machines that we're, nothing, we're getting nothing from? I think that that's something that we have to look into a little bit deeper. I know that there's been a lot of discussion about it. With the opening of the, the permanent uh, casino and actually even, even the temporary casino, uh, there are some nuances to our gaming revenue that could uh, have a negative uh, impact, or I should say the video gaming could have a negative impact on the gaming revenue just based on the, the different rates at which they're taxed. And so we don't want to inadvertently cause um, quote unquote cannibalization of one revenue stream uh, to the detriment of another. And so we definitely definitely have to look a little bit deeper, um, making sure that both of those can be supported um, by, uh, you know, not only those who partake in those types of activities, uh, but those who also provide those activities. So we're definitely looking at it. It's been brought up by a number of alders who are interested in us taking a, a you know a second look at whether or not we can implement something like that in the city of Chicago. Yeah, what about putting the video gaming terminals at O'Hare and Midway, at least? Keeping them, you know, away from the casino, but at least taking advantage of this captive audience at the airport. I, I think it's definitely something we should be looking at. Um, but, at the, you know, at the end of the day, we, as I said before, want to make sure that, you know, any tax revenue that we bring on can stand on its own without, you know, taking away, um, you know, the the consumer base 
from another Would it test. take away if it were just at O'Hare and Midway? I, I don't know. I think that, that we'd have to look into it. Yeah. And you're asking the business community, the same business community that you're going to hit with this uh, quadrupling of the real estate transaction tax to generate money for homelessness. You're asking them to come to the table and help you find new revenue and agree to certain things. I mean, aren't you asking too much of the business community at a time when you've also eliminated the subminimum wage? You're asking them to increase paid leave. You're asking a heck of a lot from the business community, aren't you? I, I think we, uh, we owe it to ourselves, both as residents of the city of Chicago, as well as those that do business here, to work together to, you know, for the betterment of the city. Um, just as much as uh, businesses are able to benefit from being in a city with workers available for, you know, their businesses, you know, we lean on them also to provide and generate ideas for, you know, how to best move the city forward. Um, I don't know that it's asking too much of them. I think it's asking them to be in partnership with us. And are there any ideas you'd like to throw out there for the Revenue Subcommittee as they begin this monumental task? Um, I will say that, uh, you know, I'm not going to specifically say any particular uh, revenue sources just because I think that that's best left for a discussion. I think that there's all the things that, you know, we've heard about uh, brought up, whether it's from the Civic Fed or, you know, other uh, groups as it relates to things that we should be looking at, um, taxes based on, um, you know, the, the not only the residential base that lives here, but those that, that come to our city, uh, whether it's just for work or it's for, um, uh, you know, to visit, uh, we're going to be looking at all of those things. So I'm not going to speak to any particular revenue source because I, I'd rather that be a part of the conversation uh, rather than it being out uh, uh, before we're ready for the conversation to occur. Two weeks of budget hearings are now over. You and the rest of the mayor's financial team testified on day one, and then you listened on that squawk box, the speaker system, for the rest of the two weeks. What did you learn, and what might you change by way of budget amendments? Uh, what I learned is that, you know, there's a lot of good things in this budget that a lot of the alders um, support, um, you know, whether it's you know, bringing back the Department of Environment, um, uh, you know, focusing on, you know, youth engagement, which when we did our budget town halls, when we did budget engagement surveys, was literally the number one thing that the residents of the city of Chicago asked us to spend and invest our budget on was youth engagement, youth jobs. Um, and that's something that alders really support, whether it's, you know, thinking through the mental health expansion so that we can shift away from law enforcement-based uh, mental health services. Uh, so there's a lot of good in this budget. There are some, uh, you know, uh, asks that, you know, the alders have made about trying to get into this budget or future budgets that we're, you know, kind of engaged in those conversations right now um, to see, you know, what. Like if what? Like what? What thing. might you change? You know, is it the the extra aid that they want, an increase in their expense allowance? What what it, What might you add and change? Well, I, I do think, you know, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, adding additional uh, um, staffer to 
uh, an alderman's ward office. You know, I, I should note that, you know, an additional staffer was added, you know, no less than four years ago uh, under the previous administration. So, you know, these are ongoing conversations with the alders, understanding what their needs are, where we are in our departments with our hiring, because a lot of that um, kind of uh, is based on the fact that we're understaffed in a lot of our service departments. Um, and so a lot is, is falling more onto, you know, alderman, aldermanic staff. Um, you know, so that, that's one of the areas in which, you know, we're engaged in discussions right now with the elders just to see what's possible and, and what's needed. And what about their expense allowance? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's an open question uh, as to whether or not their expense accounts need to go up and, and, and the reasons for that. Um, we understand um, the request. It always comes down to whether or not there is sufficient uh, funding to support that. The biggest point of contention, at least initially, was Mayor Johnson's decision to include just $150 million in the budget for the care and feeding of the nearly 20,000 asylum seekers who have descended on Chicago. The mayor's own floor leader has acknowledged that that's only enough to carry Chicago through half the year, if that. If the caravans of buses and, and plane loads intensifies, as many people have really expect it will, as Chicago gets closer to hosting the Democratic National Convention with that big bullseye on the city's back, 150 million may not even carry that long. What is plan B? If you don't get the state and federal help that you desperately need. So I, I do want to just acknowledge that city council uh, has said both there's not enough money in this budget and there's too much money in this budget for the migrant issue. And so there's, there's not even an, a consensus on the, the figure that, you know, the mayor has put forward. Look, I, I think at the end of the day, uh, we have said from the beginning that this is a federal issue. Immigration is not something that can be handled at the local level because we don't have the jurisdiction or the authority to make it policy decisions in that way. And so it is incumbent upon the federal government to come in provide assistance in the way of not only financial resources, but on the ground resources to help, uh, you know, with the situation that's been caused by the, the lack of, uh, of comprehensive immigration uh, policy. Um, but not only that, you know, our, you know, local jurisdictions are not equipped to make the type of coordination uh, uh, decisions that are necessary to really, you know, provide a sustainable pathway for uh, you know these types of migration patterns, um, you know we had a delegation that went down to the border. I believe it was two weeks ago or, or last week. Uh, my weeks are starting to run together, and they found out a lot about how much help border states are receiving from the federal government to the to the to the tune of millions and millions of dollars, such that their you know local jurisdiction budgets are not um, impacted. And so we've now extended the border to the city of Chicago, and so we are making those um, those arguments on the federal level as well as the state level. Um, well, good. I'm glad you're doing that. But what happens if it falls on deaf ears as it has until now, really? I mean, the federal government has contributed a bit a, a, a relative trickle, and so has the state. And the city has opened its wallet to uh, the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. What happens? if you don't get anywhere or you don't get enough of 
the help that you need from the state and federal government? What is plan B? Well, one, I don't think that um, it's falling on deaf ears, and I don't think that we won't get additional resources from the federal government or the state. As I mentioned in my budget hearing, those conversations are ongoing, and they have been fruitful uh, thus far. Um, I will say that, you know, Chicago uh, is is relatively important uh, to um, for a number of reasons, uh, let alone the fact that, you know, the Democratic National Convention is going to be here next year. And so it's, it's really important that we're able to demonstrate how we can handle situations like this, because it goes to how we can lead, um, uh, you know, not only our city, but our country. So I, I, I don't think it's falling on deaf ears. Um, I, you know, as, 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 you know, Alderman uh, Ramirez Rosa said last week, um, plan B is we will have to, you know, come back and discuss if uh, we don't get the assistance that we have been asking for. But again, I don't think that uh, it's falling on deaf ears, and I don't think that we won't get the, the assistance that we're calling on. But plan B will have to include a property tax increase. It's the only reliable, quick source of revenue that the city has where you can borrow against that money. It's the only reliable thing. Um, I wouldn't say that that's our only option. I think that at the time we would talk about all options. Uh, what are, are the other options, options other than that? I, you know, I think that, um, you know, the, the city has uh, put forth a budget that includes the money that we are willing to contribute to this. Uh, but the city, you know, does have reserves and, and things like that, which we do not want to use because it does support other things uh, that the city uh, within the city's operations. If so, you uh, use reserves, you'll get, you'll you'll get your bond rating lowered. Exactly, which is why we're not willing to do that. Uh, but it is an option on the table. Um, but I would say that you know at the time that uh, you know half of the year comes to roll around next year, um, if we're in the same situation that we are now, we will be back at the table discussing this with all stakeholders both council as well as the mayor's office. But you would turn first to the reserves before you went to property taxes. Is that what you're saying? I'm okay. not saying anything. I'm saying that we'd be back at the table. and, and but, but the only other option you put out there is, is dipping into the reserves. That's one option. There's other options. What I, you know, not, I don't, I I don't think, know of any. What are they? Yeah, I, I think that that would be part of the discussion, Fran. As to are what there any options. others? that you can toss out there other than the property tax and the reserves? I, I you know, at the top of my head, um, I, I I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I know that there's other options and, and we have a lot of smart people here that would uh, be able to, uh, you know, bring that to bear in the discussion. Casino revenues are being counted on to generate $200 million to save police and fire pension funds that are now hovering very dangerously close to bankruptcy. But the temporary casino at Medina Temple has fallen short so far of projected revenues, and that may continue. What about the other pension funds and the city's growing pension liability? And what happens if the casino doesn't get to $200 million? Well, I think it's a little bit early to say that the temporary casino is underperforming. I think that we have less than one month's worth of data, um, and a couple of things happened in the month of September. They had a very soft opening, um, and it didn't, you know, fully officially open until three weeks later. Um, and around that time, we saw, you know, the complete shutdown of the city of Chicago through 
um, the celebrations for Mexican Independence Day. So they were, they basically people were shut off from going to the casino. So I, I don't think that, you know, the partial month of data that we have is dispositive of what the temporary casino is going to be able to do. In addition, um, you know, a very preliminary report um, came out um, from the state, which basically said that there's the based on the number of visitors to that casino, they anticipate that that might become the most frequented casino uh, um, in the region. So I, I don't think that it's dispositive of what that casino will be able to do in the months to come once we have more data under our belt. Um, you know, our we're, we're sticking to our um, forecast for the casino right now um, and, and do believe that it will be able to generate the, 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 the dollars needed um, to support both the fire and uh, police pension funds at $200 million when the permit casino opens. Um, we we don't have enough data to, to say that 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 forecast is 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 wrong. The real estate transaction tax that you want to quadruple to create a hundred million dollars a year for homelessness is a very volatile tax. And as you know, the real estate industry is going through some tough times right now. It's in a real down cycle. There aren't many homes on the market, et cetera, and so on. Is that a reliable source for this? And what happens if that falls short? Well, you you nailed it on the head. It is a volatile revenue source. Um, and I think it, it, is, it has been, right? Um, this isn't the first time that real estate market, whether commercial or residential, has had a downswing, right? When we uh, did the numbers for uh, the policy and the ordinance, um, we looked at over 13 years worth of data because we wanted to control for these types of peaks and valleys within this particular revenue source. Um, and we did see the cyclical nature of, of this tax. I think, um, you know, when we did our forecast, we were very conservative in the number that we put out. The $100 million is an average amount over several, several years that we uh, observed. Um, there are years where, you know, it's $300 million. Um, so, you know, the, the $100 million is an average. The way that we would budget for that is we would, we would never budget uh, the full amount of the anticipated uh, revenue collected because we understand that because this is a volatile revenue source, there needs to be cash reserves in order to support, um, you know, in any given year, the, the, the expenditures that are anticipated. So, uh, there are ways to control for the volatility of this tax. Yet another issue is whether or not the police department will be able to keep pace with the rate of attrition and promotions in 2024. There are 891 officers over age 55. 200 of them have already declared their intention to retire in 2024. Another 1,146 officers are 49 with 20 years of service. And you have uh, promotions, hundreds of them that you plan to make in the police department. Are you going to be able to keep pace with all this and not fall you, further uh, behind? We have already 1,700 vacancies. Yeah, I think you heard um, Superintendent Snelling say the other day that attrition has started to slow um, amongst uh, the, the rank and file um, just as he came into first with interim superintendent Waller and now with Snelling in place. And also, you know, I think with the, the new contract that'll come before city council 
that was just um, agreed upon between uh, the mayor's office uh, labor team and the FOP, I think will will really show our commitment to our rank and file um, and really bring people back into the fold and also continue that, that to, to keep that uh, attrition from from happening as quickly. Um, the, the superintendent and his team are extremely committed to uh, not only uh, having more classes of um, recruits this year, but um, onboarding them and providing the necessary training and supervision to make sure that they are prepared for the job ahead of them. In addition to that, uh, you've heard me talk about, you've heard him talk about, uh, you know, how shifting some of those positions to civilian positions will actually free up officers who are currently doing administrative tasks back onto the force. So that actually puts more people on the street than we currently have. Um, so I think that uh, all of those things working together will help uh, not only build up the, uh, the force, but also stop the attrition that we're currently, that we've seen in the past. You wiped out 80% of the shortfall by taking a $434 million TIF surplus, and that threatens to deprive developers of the subsidies they need to transform LaSalle Street office buildings into residential. So I want to clarify something. Uh, the, the the declaration of $434 million, that doesn't all come to the city of Chicago. Only 100 of that comes to the city of Chicago. So our budget gap wasn't uh, um, resolved primarily through TIF surplus. Only 50 million of it was. So uh, only a small portion of, of our gap was was uh, comprised or, or solving our gap was comprised of TIF surplus. Um, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, a misunderstanding about how our TIFs work, um, and also what, uh, how we uh, account for the funding needed for certain development projects. Um, as we've had conversations with uh, the alders, um, as well as others uh, in interested parties, um, you know, the TIF districts replenish their taxes every year. Uh, the the particular TIF districts that you're talking about for LaSalle Street Reimagined bring in close to $180 million every single year. And those projects um, have already been accounted for when it comes to the cash flow needed at the time that those developments will start. And so we have not deprived any of our TIF districts based on the projects that have been identified, the projects that have been approved, have gone through the, the finance committee, as well as our internal uh, TIF committee. So I, I think you know it's important for us to make sure that we have all the facts uh, um, uh, when it comes to how we actually, one, close our budget gap, but then, you know, what resources are available for development activities within the city of Chicago. Before we let you go, and I know you have limited time, for all his claims about structural solutions, the mayor did erase the shortfall with one-time revenues, a lot of them. You know, he declared the TIF surplus, which is not recurring. He will refinance city bonds, generating $89.2 million. He's got $41.5 million in personnel savings. He's got improved revenue projections. He's got this. How is this refinancing any different than scoop and toss? Oh, I think it's definitely not scoop and toss. I think, um, I think you know, just like you would think about your home mortgage, um, there are opportunities within the market for us lower our interest rates on our existing bonds. 
And I think that um, it's, it, it's prudent financial uh, uh, best practices for us to take advantage of those types of opportunities uh, for uh, both uh, the management of our debt, but also for how we best use our resources. Um, so this is this is not you know refunding to get rid of uh, all of our debt service and and move it to out years. This is strategically lowering the cost of our current borrowing. All right, Annette Guzman, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the Halloween party. Get in thank your you. costume, let out some steam, and enjoy <laughs> it. And I hope you come back. I appreciate your time this morning, and I hope you have a wonderful Halloween as well. Okay, thanks, and we will see you all next week.